Welcome to Feeding the Flock and our expositions through the Old Testament book of Daniel. We are currently doing a special episode on the survey, or the summary, that is, of the entire book of Daniel. And so uh, we want to read a selected portion, or at least selected verses, in order to get started. Let's begin reading in chapter 1 and verse 8. It says this, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself. Now let's continue by reading the very last verse of chapter 12 of the book of Daniel, verse 13, where it says this, But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Hello, I'm Glendale Tony. I'm glad you joined me today for this special episode, looking through the entire book of Daniel as a whole in uh, many regards, summarizing some of the key points and, and key ideas that we have discovered along the way. We began by uh, reading those two verses, one at the very beginning of uh, Daniel's career and the other at the very end of the book. And those two passages kind of summarize everything else that went on in between. That is, this career of Daniel that spanned uh, 70 years, perhaps, maybe more, in Babylon. And, of course, during that career, he saw himself as a part of the two different empires, that is, the Babylonian Empire, as well as the Medo-Persian Empire and the first uh, uh, part of that. And so his ministry uh, was uh, very broad and very deep in many regards, even though uh, you might say there was only one or two or three people that were impacted by by his ministry directly that we have recorded in the book. And one of those happened to be uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. But in the meantime, we do want to look at some of the character qualities of Daniel. And uh, that was brought up even in this very first verse we read in uh, chapter 1, verse 8. The point is that Daniel made up his mind. There was something uh, in the core of Daniel, in the core of his spirit and in his mind and his understanding of his commitment as a Jewish person to the Jewish God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because of that, he was encountering a hostile uh, takeover by a Gentile empire. This was a dramatic event and quite traumatic for Daniel because he was extricated out of uh, Jerusalem and Judea and taken away into Babylon. And he was immediately uh, placed in a position of going to Babylon University without his <laughs> consent, so to speak, as a uh, uh, as one who's been captured uh, by the king of Babylon. So he made up his mind, and that is a very key ingredient. If we are facing a hostile culture, a culture that seems to be designed against the God of the Bible, 
Bible, then we need to make a commitment in ourselves, with ourselves, with God, and with his word to say, this is where I stand. Now, there is lots of room, even in Daniel's life and his three friends to come later, there are there is still lots of room to maneuver, you might say, to compromise, or at least to, to allow certain things to adapt into this culture, uh, the things that uh, really don't don't uh, compromise the the truth of God's word or the truth of what we know of God. And so uh, Daniel and his three friends uh, learned how to adapt to that new culture, but they also knew they needed to make a decision, a choice that they would go this far, but no farther. And uh, uh, concerning the very uh, truth of God, the very absolutes about God's word, about himself especially, and their loyalty to him. So it's important that Daniel made up his mind. We find later on in chapter 2, verse 14, that Daniel exercised discretion and discernment. That means he used that in order to make wise choices. In fact, he and his three friends found himself in very responsible position after their educational uh, uh, part of their training uh, was behind them, then they were installed in very uh, important uh, offices, you might say, in the Babylonian Empire. This Gentile Empire recognized the uh, the character of these young men and what they were willing to do and the skill in what they were willing to do. And uh, Daniel exercised discretion and discernment. He also informed his friends about the things and the, of the, his own challenges. And uh, his friends prayed for him, uh, by the way. And uh, he, he also exercised uh, uh, his discretion and discernment by, by rescuing even his fellow wise men from Babylon, which is a very interesting and intriguing thing that this, this Jewish prophet in Gentile territory uh, took an action with the king uh, Nebuchadnezzar to rescue uh, his fellow uh, professors, you might say, in Babylonian university, uh, even though these, these other men were not believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at all, they were still Gentiles, and they believed in the pagan gods of, uh, of the Babylonian empire. And, uh, and yet, uh, um, uh, Daniel intervened as a fellow professional to rescue them from the death penalty, and, and, um, and, and he did so as a part of his adaptation, you might say, to his uh, Gentile environment. And uh, that in itself demonstrated something of his character, something of his care for his fellow workers, even though they were polar opposites in their theology, and yet as, as uh, fellow members of the panel, they were, they were rescued from, from uh, the king's orders of assassination or of, uh, of execution, that is. And so uh, Daniel delivered interpretations to the king in chapter 2, verses 36, as well as chapter 4, verse 19. He declined special gifts 
or um, a bribery, you might might say. I, I'm not exactly sure, uh, but uh, Daniel chapter 5, verse 17, he declined these special gifts, even though he was already on the government uh, payroll, you might say, by being uh, being a part of the uh, the wise men of Babylon, uh, part of that committee. Uh, yet, uh, when it came to certain things, he turned away and said, no, I will not receive this, this uh, special gift from the throne. And what's interesting is uh, Daniel left such a legacy with the wise men of Babylon that uh, we believe that uh, they are the reason why the Magi, that we call them in the uh, New Testament, why these wise men came from the East. Perhaps the wise men of the New Testament that came from the East to see the birth of the Messiah, they did so motivated because the uh, University of Babylon had passed on the information that Daniel himself had passed on to his colleagues of his day so that uh, several hundred years years later, we find that uh, there was certain uh, anticipation by these uh, wise men from the East. And uh, and we, we're not exactly sure or absolutely sure there is a connection, but it sure uh, does make some sense that uh, there was this remnant of this understanding in the halls of the University of Babylon where these wise men passed on what Daniel had given them about the Jewish Messiah. Uh, Daniel asked his friends, and he himself continued to pray, and pray openly, pray regularly, uh, even in the face of, of an edict that prevented him from doing so, he continued to, to carry out this particular habitual form of uh, what he did every day anyway. And uh, he sought understanding about the things that he was being revealed uh, to him, that is. And um, and he observed the word of the Lord. He obeyed God's word uh, where he was. He uh, confessed the sins of God's people, uh, the the Jewish people, the covenant people. In Daniel chapter nine, he he did so uh, in such a fashion as to be an intercessor on their behalf. He mourned at one point in his career for twenty one days. We're not exactly sure what had happened or what he was anticipating of why he he went in into this grief period uh, where he mourned for 21 days and he fasted and he prayed. And that's in chapter 10. And we know that that uh, was the prelude for the answers that came later in chapter 10, 11, and 12. Uh, Then uh, finally in chapter 12, verse 13, Daniel is basically given permission to go on his way. And we don't hear anything else um, uh, from him as far as newer revelation or new, new, new newer insights or newer visions or anything else, uh, Daniel evidently went into some sort of maybe prophet uh, retirement. I don't know. But he he finished the book, so to speak, and and uh, the angel gave him leave. And uh, and that's what he did, evidently. And, uh, and then I want to look at, uh, as a part of this uh, survey, I want to look uh, at 
at the three friends of Daniel and see their character because it's important to to recognize what they did outside of the uh, Sunday school stories that we that we have heard perhaps all of our lives but uh, notice that they were willing to follow Daniel's lead Daniel took the leadership and he they were willing to follow uh, that lead even though at the time originally at the beginning of this story uh, they were all basically teenagers even Daniel and yet Daniel was so um, so much in a leadership kind of capacity, or maybe his personality was that way, or maybe just God moved upon his heart to lead the other three. We're not exactly sure, but they were willing to follow. And it's important that any of us know how to follow God and how to follow the leadership that God has put over us or, or ahead of us, and uh, to know how to follow the right leaders and not the wrong leaders. Um, also, they were willing to pray for Daniel's ministry and pray for Daniel's circumstances. And uh, they went back and they prayed for him. And it's always important to always have a a, a, a group of people who can pray and pray for uh, the leadership, pray for the leadership of, of uh, a congregation, perhaps, or pray for the leadership of a mission organization. And to have a group of people who are willing to pray is a precious commodity. Then it, and then also it says in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, that they were willing to take a stand in Daniel's absence. We find no record that Daniel was there when they stood while everybody else was worshiping the golden uh, idol that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They withstood. They stood up. They, they continued to stand. They took their stand even though they were threatened and they were willing to pay the price. They were willing to pay the penalty for that stand of not worshiping this idol. Instead, they stood for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Daniel, and their own God. And uh, that's, of course, the story we we uh, learn about in Sunday school, about uh, even the fiery furnace. They uh, they were rescued and uh, because there was somebody else in there with them, and they were rescued without even hearing any, uh, uh, without any damage to their clothing or their hair or their beards or anything else, and yet the ropes were uh, burned off of their hands and and feet, and they were able to walk out freely. And that was uh, the presence of the Lord himself with them in that furnace, because why? They were willing to take a stand publicly in the midst of a hostile generation, a hostile culture. Well, we'll be back on the other side of this musical break. Welcome back, and we're going through this uh, summary episode of the book of Daniel, and we want to 
pick out uh, choice passages that might reflect something of of what uh, has happened in those 70 years or more in Daniel's case, but at least those 70 years while he spent in the Babylonian Empire and then uh, followed that up with the uh, Medo-Persian Empire. So let's go to another passage that's a key ingredient, perhaps, to understand this entire book, Uh, and that's Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. We have a statement, a written statement, a gospel tract, if you want to call it that, written by King Nebuchadnezzar, because the first several chapters, we find that he is being peppered with the truth of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, through Daniel and his three friends. And uh, uh, and God uh, disciplined this, this man uh, in this uh, royal palace who made his boast about his own kingdom, and God needed uh, to discipline him and basically to put him in his place. And that's exactly what happened. And so Nebuchadnezzar wrote this gospel tract, wrote this testimonial as an official um, document um, as the king of Babylon. And he says this about Daniel's God. He says in verse 34 and 35, uh, it's recorded this statement on his behalf. It says, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever." For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? So here is a Gentile king who was humbled by God, physically, literally humbled by God in the sense that he uh, uh, took on a, a persona uh, of, uh, of an animalistic behavior, and he lived in the weeds and the woods and uh, lived out there, uh, and, uh, and, and yet at the end of this period of time, evidently a seven-year period, he, he looked toward heaven. He was humbled, and yet he remained uh, somewhat sane, or, or at least sane enough to make this one willful choice to look to heaven, to Daniel's God, not to his gods, but to this God, and declare these things to be true about him. What's amazing about this statement that uh, Nebuchadnezzar makes here, this written, documented um, expression of the theology of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is laid out here very precisely. So the character of God has been revealed to Nebuchadnezzar and as well to uh, Daniel and his three friends, but also these experiences are a revelation of the character of God to us as we read these passages and as we read this testimony by this Gentile king. We find that God is powerful. We find that God is knowledgeable. We find that God is in control and that he is 
articulate. Now, in, in the fact that he is powerful, that is a term that, that we, uh, there is a term that we use in theological uh, uh, words that, that he is called omnipotent. Uh, that means he's all powerful. He is also omniscient. That means he is knowledgeable and he is sovereign. That's the theological term for that phrase. He is in control. And, um, and he's in control uh, according to the book of Daniel and the way that we read these passages, he's in control in at least uh, two uh, two ways in which he exercises that control. One of those is instrumentally. He actually does step in and do things. He actually did step in and, and write on the wall. He actually did step in and rescue those three friends from the fiery furnace. And so uh, that was instrumentally. God somehow intervened uh, through the eternal and the infinite uh, dimension of our universe into the uh, into the material part of our universe and he invaded this part and uh, intervened and that's that's where God is in control instrumentally but he's also in control uh, providentially uh, there are reasons why kings uh, sit and read boring documents and discover things that perhaps they uh, never read before and uh, it makes a difference and uh, you, you might not put your finger on the fact that this was supernatural, but it was providential, and God was in control of these providential circumstances in such a fashion as the right people being at the right time and the right place. And uh, finally, God is articulate. And I wanted to add this to uh, the list of other things that perhaps we're very familiar with, but I wanted to put this in here because that's something that we learn also from this book of Daniel. That is, God is capable of saying the things he wants to say, communicating the things accurately that we should understand, and in Daniel's case, that Daniel should understand so that he could write them down in a fashion that we even now can read them, study them, and uh, see the, the, the work of God because God used words. You see, there's lots of things going on these days uh, in the church and in the churches and in uh, uh, Bible colleges and seminaries that basically uh, uh, say such things as, well, uh, we can't trust human language to tell us about an infinite God because these, the human language is so imperfect. And yet, uh, on the other hand, uh, don't you understand that uh, that in the biblical story of things, God is the inventor of human language. If God invented the languages of people, or at least those basic uh, root languages in at the Tower of Babel with his judgment, then then he can use human language to communicate to the prophets and communicate to us through the written words of the prophets because the words are exactly the ones that God wanted them to use. He didn't overbear their personalities or their their. Uh, 
their uh, uh, own language skills necessarily. Uh, he didn't uh, uh, do things to override their own vocabularies, you might say, or their own uh, sentence structures. And yet, on the other hand, there are portions of uh, the book of Daniel where the an- angel actually said, write this down this way. So uh, there are portions of Daniel that are written in a sort of a, a dictation format, and yet uh, we can find it reliable. Because why? Because God is articulate. He can communicate using a human instrument and human language to tell us the things that are most important and how to discern the things that are most important. So then we find ourselves with uh, another part of the survey And we can call this the times of the Gentiles. This is a part of God's revelation of himself and of his work in human history and human um, kingdoms, human uh, empires, at at least those empires that have to do with the nation of Israel, have to do with the Jewish people, have to do with the city of Jerusalem and the temple mount and the temple and uh, all the things that were Jewish, all the things of the promised land. And so when Gentile empires have been allowed by God to take over, then God communicates to us about what that means uh, according to his own words. And so we find in uh, uh, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, we can read that contract. It is a time contract. It is a time-stamped contract, you might say, a timetable that God has laid out for the times of the Gentiles. And we basically find that there are four Gentile empires before the Messiah returns to make his empire uh, in Jerusalem over the nation of Israel and the rest of the world. But before that happens, there are these four major Gentile empires, and Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, lays out the timetable. Let's read that very quickly. It says this in Daniel 9, 24, verse 24, it says this, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So we find in these four Gentile empires that were revealed in Daniel chapter 2, as well as Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter uh, 8, 
we find these four Gentile empires create uh, created through the images and the beasts and the other things of those uh, chapters. If you overlay them uh, on top of each other, you find a completer uh, revelation of what these empires are like. Uh, chapter 2 talks about Babylon being the head of gold, Medo-Persia being the arms of silver, uh, Greece being the thighs and the abs of bronze, uh, and uh, the legs of iron is Rome, as well as the feet and the toes of iron and clay are Rome. And so the timetable is laid out in this way, and yet the Messiah is cut off. Why is the Messiah cut off? Because there is a another timetable that isn't a timetable. There is a pause button that God placed when the Messiah was rejected, then there is a, a period of time. We don't know how its length. All we know is that it, there was this period of time after the first 60, 69 weeks uh, had been completed and the Messiah was rejected, then the Messiah bore our sins on the cross. He was cut off and had nothing, and yet he rose again from the grave. And then the city and the sanctuary of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman Empire, and yet there is still to be this final ruler of the Roman Empire who will make a contract with the nation of Israel and will defile this uh holy of holy place in Temple Mount. Somehow he will defile it with an image of his of himself as an idol. And uh, uh, we know that because it's been pictured already. It's happened already once by the leader of the Grecian Empire and the Syrian division. Antiochus Epiphanes did it once as a picture of what we know how to anticipate what is to come by this Roman leader, and that is the abomination of desolation. Jesus mentioned it, and he prophesied about it, uh, and yet uh, we've not seen that happen yet. We've not seen it transpire yet or being fulfilled yet. That's the reason why we're waiting around, and we're waiting around with anticipation as a part of the plan of God that now God has revealed to the Apostle Paul and others, Ephesians chapter 3, that we are a part of this mystery of God, this mystery that wasn't revealed to Daniel. We are a part. We're called the bride of Christ. We're called the body of Christ. And that is the mystery. And it's continued to be that for the last 2,000 years. We don't know when that last seven years is going to start kicking off, but somewhere God is going to release the pause button and that seven-year uh, timetable we will be re-implemented when the when this fellow leader, that is this letter leader, uh, who is uh, the leader of the Roman Empire, will desecrate the temple in the middle of that seven-year period. So that is the things, those are the things we anticipate. And we look forward to those things transpiring in the future. Father, thank you for all that you've done for us and in us and through us. In studying this book, keep us aware, give us discernment of facing a hostile culture in anticipation of your soon return. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed our presentation today. This is Glendale Tony. Join us for the next episode of Feeding the Flock.